is as we have here, 1 Samuel 3 and 21. So I'll just read through it and then perhaps we'll all read through it to lock it in and then we'll get on with it. So the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Do you mind following me and we'll just read through that once more and try and lock it in? It's a bit like you're back at Sunday school, isn't it? But here we go. 1 Samuel 3 and 21. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. 1 Samuel 3 and 21. Thank you. Now I'm going to read about Elijah this morning. The first thing I want to do is um, before reading these sections in the first book of Kings chapters 17 through 19 is I want to talk about a very old-fashioned word and I can see quite a few brethren and ex-brethren here and you might smile when you hear this word it's the word vicissitudes it's a very old-fashioned word I remember old preachers speaking about it and calling it vicissitudes and it's something my brothers and sisters and I used to joke about if something went wrong in our life we'd go ah the vicissitudes of life we'd stir each other up so what does vicissitudes mean From Cambridge Dictionary, it's changes that happen at different times during a life or development of someone or something, especially those that result in conditions being worse. And if there was ever a person in Scripture who had vicissitudes in their life, it was Elijah. So we're going to read about Elijah and then journey our way alongside him and learn about the word of the Lord in the vicissitudes of his life. Bible readings are here. I'm going to miss out some significant sections just because of time. The things in brackets there, I won't read those through completely about Elijah bringing a widow's son back to life, having the major contest with the priests of Baal on the mountain of Carmel to show that God alone was God and then lastly further ministry after I finish reading about certain sections. So there are some things in his life I'm not going to read about So let's read through this. It's a fair bit of reading. I'm going to go all the way through and then we'll just tease through six different episodes of Elijah's life. So in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then we jump through to verse 2. The word of the Lord then came to Elijah, Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kereth Ravine. Now I want you to just take notice of all of those words that are in red. The Kereth Ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kereth Raven east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Notice the word of the Lord coming to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
She was on her last legs. That was it. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Sounds pretty selfish, doesn't it? For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the Lord, the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Chapter 18, after a long time in the third year, third year of drought it's getting pretty bad here isn't it imagine three years of this no rain the word of the lord came to elijah again go and present yourself to ahab and i will send rain on the land so elijah went to present himself to ahab so this presentation here was which of the gods was true baal or god then we jump through to verse 20 so ahab sent word throughout all israel and assembled the prophets on mount carmel Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the, Lord, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And there's a major contest on the mountain, and it's proven that God is God and Baal certainly isn't. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So what happened on that mountain? As a little interjection here set up a contest and he said let's work out which god is real you set up an altar and put a beast on it and you pray to your god and if he sends fire down from heaven to consume it your god is god baal is god but if not i'll do it with my god the lord and if he sends fire down he is the lord so they set it all up and you can read the story for yourself a fascinating situation they called all day long and elijah was laughing at him saying look maybe he's gone for a holiday he could be asleep maybe he can't hear you shout a bit louder they were screaming and cutting themselves, praying for Baal, their God to send fire on the sacrifice, and it just didn't happen. So then it was his turn at the end of the day, poured water all over the sacrifice, filled the trench, drenched the whole lot. One word to the Lord God, and down came the fire and consumed the lot, including the rocks that he used to build the altar, 12 rocks for the tribes of Israel. And after that, the priests were brought. There were 950 in total, the priests of Baal and Ashtaroth, and they were all killed and slaughtered by Elijah's command and the people of Israel said the Lord he is God so that's what happened and now in chapter 19 Ahab told Jezebel now Jezebel was the wife of the king there's probably no more wicked woman in the Bible no more vicious woman very very powerful came from a foreign land brought her gods with her and all her priests and she had set up this walking away from God and she didn't really like Elijah for many reasons, and this is one of them. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Notice that this is the word of Jezebel by a messenger. It's not the word of God at all. But Elijah listened to it. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush or a juniper tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights. Now this may not be truly literal, it was an Israelite saying for a very, very, very long journey. Probably 40 days and 40 nights would have taken him too far away from where this is probably happening. So we're not quite sure, but it was a long journey. 40 days, 40 nights, until he reached Horeb, in other words, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now notice here that he just did that without the word of the Lord telling him to go there. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he then said the same as he'd said in verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, etc., lifting himself up and tearing others down. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Yet, and here's a bit of gentle rebuke from God, I reserve 7,000 Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. May God bless his word. I'd just like to pray for God's wisdom now as we actually tease this out. Father God, we're so grateful for the interesting word that you've given us, for these examples to read, and we pray that right now the Spirit of God will come on us all here and give us a word from yourself. These are your words. We wish to listen to them today. We pray that you'll deliver to each of our hearts in all of our circumstances what we need from you to enable us to help us on the vicissitudes of our journey too. So we pray for this and bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Each of these episodes, <clears throat> here's the names of the places and why I've highlighted them in red. And I just want to go through each of these episodes. Firstly, Kereth. The brook Kereth means cut off or isolation. Zarephath means smelting place or a place of refining. Carmel, which is where he went and had the big contest with the priest of Baal, means fruitfulness. And then he was in the wilderness, and the actual original Hebrew word for that means passing away or dying. Then we have the place of Horeb, which means desolate. And lastly, Abel Mahola, which means meadow of dancing. Now, I don't think it's any mistake that these different name places mean something very special. In fact, I hadn't actually teased out the word Carmel when I was putting my message together and I had a look this morning and rejigged a few things, as my family will tell you. And I thought through and I thought, Carmel, I haven't looked up what the word Carmel means. And originally in my thoughts I was thinking of all the journeys of his life and I was thinking Carmel's really the peak 
where he was working for God, and probably the best word is fruitfulness, but it's a bit old-fashioned. I'm trying to push a square peg in a round hole. So I pulled up my Bible, looked up the original Hebrew word, and it's fruitful. So I thought, yeah, there's no mistake that God does in through his word gives these places names. We've got to be careful that we're not pushing it too far. But I think we can't deny the relevance of the meanings of these names as we tease out the journey of the life of Elijah. And that's the beautiful thing about God's word. The deeper you dig, the more you find. It's incredible, alive and powerful from God. So here's these different places. And firstly, I'll just look at Kerith. I want to show you this is what the journey of his life looks like in a graph form just to help us out. Firstly, he was on a fairly high place there, the initial prayer to God. And then he went downwards at Kerith and at Zarephath. Then he had the peak of his experience at Carmel. Then even down further when he walked away from the word of the Lord until he was in the absolute pits at Horeb. And then God restored him back up to a place. So all the highs and lows, the vicissitudes of his life teased out through these six different places. Let me go through them. I'll leave that up there just to help you. Or perhaps I'll go there. Kerith, firstly. <clears throat> well, actually, even initially, on that graph, I've got the place where he had the power, place of prayer. Now, Elijah went up to Ahab and he said very confidently, incredibly confidently, that there was going to be no rain on the land while they worshipped a different prophet. Now, that came very expressly from a book written about 500 years before, the book of Deuteronomy, and obviously Elijah was very, very aware of what the Word of God said. So the first direction here that we read about in Elijah's life was based on the Word of God, because remember, we're doing the Word of God here. And it wasn't a direct vision or dream or anything like that specifically. It was him knowing the Scriptures, the promises of God, and he reached back and he saw the land of Israel following after other gods, and he, sa he said to himself, I'm sure... Back in Deuteronomy, 500 years ago, it was written, if you turn away, and this is in Deuteronomy 11, 16 to 7, you turn away to other gods, I will withhold the rain from heaven and the land will become parched and you will all die until you turn back to God. And he used that powerful promise of God from the scriptures to go to the king and say, this is what's going to happen. And it just happened. Absolutely stunning. He based his prayer and his faith and action on the word of God. We can be sure that the word of God is true. And if we're wanting direction from God and we seek to do something which is not in the Word, then we've got to be very, very careful. But if God's clearly promised something in the Word, we can pray for it with faith and we can act on it. For instance, in the book of James, if any person lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and it will be given him. I pray for wisdom every day with my clients at work, with the way I run my practice, with the way I look after my family. I believe God gives that wisdom. I'm dependent on it for him. We can be sure that if it's written in the Word of God, we can pray for it with strength and power. And God will bring it through to fruition as he wills. So the first episode was Elijah basing his activity on the word of God. And we can see that the results it brought about. No rain fell for three and a half years. The only time it came again was after the sacrifice and the people turned back to God and Elijah prayed and it started raining again. So the promise came absolutely true. We can certainly be uh, resting in the faithfulness of the God of the word second episode was the episode at Kerith where it means cut off or isolation now here was Elijah I don't know how God spoke to Elijah here it just says the word of the Lord came to him I don't know it might have been a dream a vision I have no idea but the word of the Lord came to him and he obeyed it he did what the Lord had told him in verse 5 
He went to this brook out in the middle of this awful wadi. I've looked at photos of it and it's just this desolate place. And there God used a raven. Now, in Leviticus, a raven was an unclean bird. Jewish people shouldn't have had anything to do with it. Have you ever seen a crow give up its tucker, give up its roadkill? Crows are one of the most scabby of creature, all creatures. They'll never give up their food. And almost like God's got a sense of humour here. I'm going to use an unclean creature and I'm going to get this creature that never give up its food to feed you morning and night for probably 12 months. It's roughly 12 months, plus being fed from the brook Kerith, which means isolated. You know, the flock name, the technical name for a flock of ravens is not a flock, it's actually an unkindness, believe it or not. And here's these ravens kindly bringing food from the Lord. Incredible, isn't it? So here's Elijah, he's isolated. He's being fed miraculously by unclean, unkind scavengers. And he was spending time alone with God. There's the preparation, the food of the Lord being given to him morning and night. And there he was, probably a year, cut off by himself, isolated at Kerith. But in fellowship with God, and I think that there are times in life when we're isolated and we feel like we're just in this backwater and nothing's happening. And they're the times where God's rounding us up and preparing us for a great work ahead of us. And it's really precious and special that morning and evening we've got the word of the Lord to feed on. We can take up his word and meditate on it and spend time with him, even in those times in our life where we don't appear to be very fruitful or effective. God is there and the Lord will be with us in those situations. Those years at Kerith are not wasted. I don't know if you're in a Kerith at the moment, but it's a beautiful time to settle alone with the word of the Lord and get close to God himself. The second place he went to was Zarephath, which means smelting place or a place of refining. Who was Elijah? He was this rough, tough bloke. He just like blasted out of the middle of nowhere. The only person in his genealogy is his father in the scriptures. He came from a little tiny town called Tishbe, Elijah the Tishbite. There's nothing mentioned of him. He had no children, no wife. He comes on the scene, lives this incredibly dynamic life, and then he just like disappears in this chariot of fire and goes off to heaven. He's just like this stunning man, this big, rough, tough, probably loud and probably, probably hairy and smelly and angry and strong and all those things that Elijah appears to be when he was fighting for God. And here he is and he's forced for two years to live with a woman who's a widow, who's not even an Israelite. He's living with an unclean woman who wasn't even a person from Israel. And she was a widow. So she had no resources really to feed him. She was a woman, and Jewish men hated women in those days. They thought they were the lowest of the low, thought they were lower than dogs. And not only that, she wasn't even an Israelite. And here he was, this big, tough, dynamic man, forced to live with her for two years. Can you imagine it? Not even a shed down the backyard to tinker around in. He's living with this woman and her son. How incredibly frustrating and um, confining it must have been for him. How refining. God was teaching him gentleness and kindness to others and providing for him along the way. And of course, there it's that he does that great, great work in raising her son. Now, I believe he raised her son, and I haven't read that, but her son died. And Elijah prayed to God, and he, he really challenged God about it. He said, are you going to bring dishonor to your name by allowing this woman's son to die after all this? I think he was actually basing that on another verse in Deuteronomy, which says he or God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner who resides among you, giving him food or clothing. I think he was basing that activity on the character of God revealed in Deuteronomy. 
So even there in that place of refining, he was listening to the word of God and God was preparing him for the next great work. I don't know if you're feeling constricted and refined and under the smelting pot of God as he's purging away the yucky stuff and bringing out the gold, taking you through difficult, constraining circumstances. He's in it all and his word's still faithful in it all and he's still preparing you for perhaps a great work that's to come. So the great work to come was Carmel, the mountain of fruitfulness. We've already talked about that. I won't go into that much, but that's probably the pinnacle, I think, of Elijah's situation. You can see above Carmel there, I've got the pinnacle. It's all just relative here. But I think that was probably the most powerful and most fruitful pinnacle of his life. He'd been in preparation for it for three years for that work. Incredible what God can do for those who are refined and spend time alone with him. But then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. No, the word of Jezebel came to Elijah and he freaked. He didn't stop and think about God and all he had done and all that time he'd spent with him. He just freaked. This woman's powerful. Now, Elijah must have been exhausted from that day before with the huge sacrifices on Mount Carmel. He must have been absolutely worn out from that huge experience, I think. And here he was at a really, really low pitch. They often come after a great time in our lives, don't they? Often there's a real slump that comes afterward. There's a real challenge. And Satan often brings a challenge to us when we've been fruitful for God. So here's Elijah, and he hears the word of Jezebel, and he was afraid. He just lit off, ran for his life. And he left his servant, went right out into the wilderness, where the original word means passing away. And then he said, it's enough, Lord. I've had enough. I have no idea where you are in your vicissitudes, but if you are at that stage where you've had enough, you've just done, and you just want to give it up. And he was even suicidal. I've just had enough. Take my life away. I'm happy if I pass away, which is where this place means. I've just done and dusted. And he lies down, and the tenderness of God comes via an angel, giving him bread and water cooked on the coals. Two times this angel feeds him, There's no rebuking him. There's no telling off or anything like that here. There's just the tender kindness of God. I think that's really precious. In those times when we're at the end of ourselves, the tenderness and the kindness and the gentleness and the provision of God is there. He feeds him bread and water via an angel. So God, despite Elijah running off, not at the command of God, doing his own thing and becoming completely self-centred, Still, God just doesn't rebuke him. He's there with him. And there's encouragement in that for us. Often we trip up, don't we? In the vicissitudes of our life, we just act on our own impulses and we get into trouble. And we fall and we fail and we do the wrong thing. And the stunning thing is that God is there with all of his tenderness and his desire to just lift us back up again. I think it's incredibly precious, his time in the wilderness. It's probably one of the most intimate times that we read about his time with God. And from there, he gets fed and he takes off again on his own desire, his own thoughts, not the word of God. And he runs this massive journey to Horeb. He must have been absolutely exhausted by the time he got there. My, that was some bread and water if you could run 40 days and nights on that. Provision of God's incredible, isn't it? It can take us a long way. And here we find him at Horeb. And he sneaks up into a cave. Now, Horeb is Sinai, and we remember that the word of God came to Moses on Sinai. We remember that the ground shook and that it thundered 
and that there was smoke and fire, all that huge, huge presence of God on the top of the mountain that made everybody freak out while Moses was up there receiving the Ten Commandments. That's kind of replicated here. God comes along and he finds him and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah starts out with it. Out it all comes. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's all self-centered. I've been so zealous for you, God. I've done this and I've done that and I'm the only one left. All these others are just turned away from you. Nobody's left. There's no prophets left. Now, Elijah was forgetting that along the way previously, he'd met Obadiah, who was a standing prophet for him. And Obadiah had hidden two lots of 50 prophets in caves away from Jezebel, who was killing all the priests of God. So Elijah kind of conveniently forgot that. He just brushed that under the carpet, those hundred prophets. I'm the only one left, God. It's easy to get self-centered, isn't it? But even when we're walking in selfishness and in our own humanness and in our own just lack of care for others and lack of thinking about God, God is there. And he's not there with judgment, with fire and earthquake and wind ripping the rocks apart. He's not there with power and judgment. He's there with this still small voice and the literal interpretation is gentle whisper, which is why I whispered it. It's this incredibly gentle, personal, individual, God himself speaking to Elijah. He whispers to him. It's just what Elijah needed. He was done and dusted. He'd wanted to die. Now he was just selfish and he was not fruitful at all. He was just in this place and Horeb just means desolate. He was at the end of it. And there at the end of it, God met him. And he comes in, this almighty, powerful, thundering, lightning God. And he comes in with a gentle whisper, individual, personal, caring and kind. Isn't that beautiful? Incredible. Not sure again if you're there in that place, but we all get there because none of us can say we're on a steady plane. Our lives too are up and down and if we aren't there now, we will be. And if we've been there in the past, we might go there again. But in it all, even though again he hadn't listened to the word of the Lord and he'd done it off his own back, God was there and he was there in tenderness and kindness. There's no matching this amazing God of ours, is there? And he said that twice. He whinged a couple of times to God. And then God did gently remonstrate. He said, look, I actually have preserved some others there. There's another 7,000, not just 100. There's 7,000, mate, you know, come on. And God gently restored him. He gently corrected him. He didn't, he didn't smash him down. He gently, in that whisper, he corrected him. But then not only did he correct him, he actually had something better in store for him, which is beautiful. God said to him, I've got somewhere else for you to go. So here comes the word of the Lord back to Elijah again, again. He's two times he's run away without the word of the Lord. Here comes the word of the Lord back to him again. Hey, Elijah, I've got something else for you to do. I want you to go to Abel Mahola. I want you to go to Damascus and then to Abel Mahola. And I want you to find this young guy called Elisha. And I want you to give him the mantle and I want you to pass it on because I've raised him up to succeed you he's going to come along and be a helper and then he's going to take up the battle I think that must have made Elijah's heart glad, it's good to have someone come alongside when you're in the pits isn't it the Lord himself was there but he just doesn't come and just talk to him he actually provides a solution for him as well and so he brings along this guy whose name is Elisha it means God is my salvation Elijah means Jehovah or Yahweh is the Lord. 
You know, he was all about Jehovah is the Lord and that's what his big pinnacle was. But then God brings him to this new guy and he's going to hand the mantle to Elisha, God is my salvation. And I think that's beautiful because in all of this awful journey that Elisha was walking, all the ups and downs, God comes close to him and he restores him and he brings him close to himself and he delivers him into salvation. He restores him back up to usefulness for himself. You see, after Abel Mahola, there were two more episodes in Elijah's life where he was absolutely fruitful for God. God restored him after he was in the pits. Sometimes we feel broken by our sin and broken by our addictions and broken by our uselessness and our selfishness and our failure. But God is wanting to come close and bring us up into restoration and make us work for him again. And we can. We can be fruitful for God again if we've failed and we've stumbled and slipped. So God brings him to Abel Mahola, which means meadow of dancing. Isn't that beautiful? This guy, he was in the pits, he was isolated and desolate. He's now dancing in the meadow. He's got a guy to come along and help him. And then we read, finally, the Elisha's just taken up into this whirlwind in heaven and the chariots of fire and these horses. And yet we know that Elijah's life wasn't finished there because we read of him again in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was lifted up. There was Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. Can't get much higher than that pinnacle now, can you? Up on the mountain of transfiguration, alone with Jesus himself in all of his glory. And there's Elijah alongside him. And in Revelation, we read of two witnesses for three and a half years in the tribulation time. And almost certainly, we don't know, but almost certainly I think one of those is Elijah. Why so? They preached for three and a half years, the same time as the rain came here. But he also preaches and says that the word of the Lord says the rain's not going to come, there's going to be a drought during that time. And he's also one of the three people in scripture, there's Elijah, Moses and Enoch, who we don't read about their actual death. And so they are sort of like lifted up and, and, and taken into, a, into the realm of heaven and they didn't actually die and they've got a work to go on in the future. So I think most probably myself that one of those witnesses in the future is Elijah. So God hadn't finished with old Elijah despite his ups and downs and his vicissitudes, had he? So Elijah had more work to do and God restored him to it. So Elijah's journey was a life of ups and downs, was it not? And if you could draw it after that, I think it would go up a little bit higher and then it would go right up to the Mount of Transfiguration and then future work. We know this lovely man's with God himself, doing the work of God and enjoying his presence forever now. We'll meet him one day, it'll be a fascinating thing to meet up with people like Elijah, won't we? So what are the lessons for Elijah's life for us? Well, it just so happens in the New Testament, it mentions Elijah again. Down in verse 17, Elijah was a human being just like we are. You know, he's not this magical figure. He just lived his life and we're similar. We're, we're these children of God and we can live our life as well. So he was really like us and this is why this is encouraging here. I'll just read this through. Is anyone among you in trouble? This is where it becomes relevant. Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick. Now that actually means exhausted and oppressed. It does not mean physically sick. It means like Elijah, exhausted and depressed when he was out in the wilderness and when he was at Horeb. And the Lord will make that person well. And that actually doesn't mean physically well. It means lifted up and encouraged, brought up out of that low spot, up into joy again, just like Elijah was. That's what the literal meaning of those words are. I think, personally, 
this is pretty well misused among a lot of Christians, but this is what the truth is, the background meaning of what this is saying there. In all of our situations when we are flattened, God is there to lift us up again. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? We need that. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. And here's an encouragement to us if one of our brothers or sisters is where Elijah was in that place of desolation. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We too live a life like Elijah with its ups and its downs. Sometimes we're dancing with joy in the meadow and singing songs of praise. Sometimes we're in trouble and sometimes we're flattened. But in all those circumstances, God is there and our brothers and sisters can be there to help one another out, to lift one another up. In all of Elijah's vicissitudes, we have those replicated in our lives and there is nowhere in our life where God is not with us. There's another lesson for us in Hebrews 4 and 12 and that is the lesson of Jesus himself. The word of God is alive and active. There's that word of God again, hey? The Bible. We have the Bible. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of, to him, of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Remember Jesus out in the desert wilderness and Satan coming to him? Remember the trials he went through? He's a man who did not fail. And yet he knows what we're going through. He's got this tenderness and kindness. And he is up there pleading our cause before God. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Look at the resources we've got. We've got the example of Elijah up and down. We've got the example of Jesus and so, all of these resources are at our hands. I noted them down very briefly. We have the completed word of God. Elijah didn't have that, he had some of it. We got a completed word of God. We got the example of Elijah. He had no one that we know of before him who went through exactly the same. We can look at his life and learn these fantastic lessons today. We have Jesus, the Son of God, who's come and lived as a man and he's been tired and he's been depressed and he's been crying and he's been hungry and he's been tempted and he's been at the end of himself as an example of one who did not fail. And that same beautiful man, Jesus, is now at the right hand of God. And as we go through these vicissitudes in our lives, there he is pleading our cause. With the Holy Spirit of God descended and living within us to give us the power to give us the understanding of the word. We've got the word of God to read to guide us all the way along. And ultimately, we've got the meadow of dancing. We're singing about dancing this morning. We've got the meadow of dancing ahead of us, being restored back up out of this place of our life and ultimately lifted up into heaven to be with Jesus himself, free from trouble, 
and sin and depression and isolation and loneliness and fear and all those things that we all suffer. What stunning resources we have for the vicissitude life that we are living. So Elijah was isolated, he was refined, he was fruitful. He was in the wilderness suicidal and wishing to die, he was desolate. And finally he's in the field of dancing and we know that he's been used much more for God since then. Wherever we are, God is there. And his presence is available to us. So, what's the lesson? Let us take heart today in our lives. No matter where we are, I have no idea who you are, as in what's going on in your life. I see a lot of folks as clients every day. And I hear stories that make me cry, and I hear stories that make me furious at the unjustness of what goes on in people's lives. We all live these things. We've been there and done it. All of us, if we are not there now, will be in different stages of ups and downs, the vicissitudes of our own lives. But we can take heart because we have this beautiful high priest in heaven. We have the example of the scripture and we know that the spirit of God and God himself is with us in all of our circumstances, even when we've mucked up. So be encouraged, every one of us. May our hearts be lifted by the word of God, whether it's spoken in his word or from another brother or sister who comes to help us back from the error of our ways or whether the Spirit of God's speaking directly to our hearts or maybe he talks in miracles, I don't really know. I'm not sure on that one myself. But however God's speaking to us, he's there with us and he wants to bring us up into that field of dancing and make us fruitful again for him. So there you go, there's the life of Elijah. There's a lot of relationship to my life, I know that. And I pray for you, whatever's happening in your life, that you too will know the kindness and the tenderness and the gentle whisper of God in the direst of circumstances and know the power of God based on his word in living a life of faith and fruitfulness for him. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the relevance of your word. It is a lie that's living and it's powerful and it cuts right down into the middle of our hearts and our lives. And there's nothing you don't see and there's nothing you don't care about. And we're very grateful for that because we do stumble and fail. We give up, we're desolate, we're isolated, and we're sad and depressed. And often we're proud and often we're critical of others and still you're there. And still you draw us back towards that field of dancing. Help us to come close to you this week, God, and in our lives. Let us hear the word of the Lord from your word and from our circumstances and from others working with us and by your spirit. Draw us back to you and let us be open to that God. Let us hear your voice and obey it and draw us back close until we're finally together with him and meet him in the air and see him face to face and then we'll be like him and with him where he is. Our joy will be complete and it'll come full circle. We thank you and we really bless you and pray for one another today and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thanks, David. We're going to conclude our service now with our final song. As we do, the offering buckets will go around. If you are not a regular attender here, please don't feel obligated to put something in. You can just let that pass by or pop the Connect card in if you filled out anything there. So we're going to stay seated as we start singing and Josh will give us the cue of when to stand. And a reminder, please stay afterwards to...